Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Section zero of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. Translated by Albert M. C. McMaster, A. E. Henderson, and Luis Quesada. Section 0. Guy de Maupassant, a study by Paul Neveu. I entered literary life as a meteor, and I shall leave it like a thunderbolt. These words of Maupassant to José María de Heredia on the occasion of a memorable meeting are, in spite of their morbid solemnity, not in an exact summing up of the brief career during which, for ten years, the writer, by turns undaunted and sorrowful, with the fertility of a master hand, produced poetry, novels, romances, and travels, only to sink prematurely into the abyss of madness and death. In the month of April, 1880, an article appeared in the Le Galois announcing the publication of the Soirées de Medan. It was signed by a name as yet unknown, Guy de Maupassant. After a juvenile diatribe against romanticism and a passionate attack on languorous literature, the writer extolled the study of real life and announced the publication of the new work. It was picturesque and charming. In the quiet of evening, on an island in the Seine, beneath poplars instead of the Neapolitan cypresses dear to the friends of Boccaccio, amid the continuous murmur of the valley, and no longer to the sound of the Pyrenean streams that murmured a faint accompaniment to the tales of Marguerite's cavaliers, the master and his disciples took turns in narrating some striking or pathetic episode of the war, and the issue and collaboration of these tales in one volume, in which the master jostled elbows with his pupils, took on the appearance of a manifesto, the tone of a challenge, or the utterance of a creed. In fact, however, the beginnings had been much more simple, and they had confined themselves, beneath the trees of Medan, to deciding on a general title for the work. Zola had contributed the manuscript of the Attaque du Moulin, and it was at Maupassant's house that the five young men gave in their contributions. Each one read his story, Maupassant being the last. When he had finished Boule de Suif, with a spontaneous impulse, with an emotion they never forgot, filled with enthusiasm at this revelation, they all rose and, without superfluous words, acclaimed him as a master. He undertook to write the article for the Galois, and, in cooperation with his friends, he worded it in the terms with which we are familiar, amplifying and embellishing it, yielding to an inborn taste for mystification which his youth rendered excusable. The essential point, he said, is to unmoor criticism. It was unmoored. The following day, Wolfe wrote a polemical dissertation in the Figaro and carried away his colleagues. The volume was a brilliant success, thanks to Boule de Suif. Despite the novelty, the honesty of effort on the part of all, no mention was made of the other stories. Relegated to the second rank, they passed without notice. From his first battle, Maupassant was master of the field of literature. At once the entire press took him up and said what was appropriate regarding the budding celebrity. Biographers and reporters sought information concerning his life. As it was very simple and perfectly straightforward, they resorted to invention. And thus it is that at the present day, Maupassant appears to us like one of those ancient heroes whose origin and death are veiled in mystery. I will not dwell on Guy de Maupassant's younger days. 
His relatives, his old friends, he himself, here and there in his works, have furnished us in their letters enough valuable revelations and touching remembrances of the years preceding his literary debut. His worthy biographer, H. Edouard Mamiel, after collecting intelligently all the writings, condensing and comparing them, has been able to give us some definite information regarding that early period. I will simply recall that he was born on the 5th of August, 1850, near Dieppe, in the castle of Miromesnil, which he describes in Une Vie. Maupassant, like Flaubert, was a Norman through his mother, and through his place of birth he belonged to that strange and adventurous race, whose heroic and long voyages on tramp trading ships he liked to recall. And just as the author of Education Sentimentale seems to have inherited in the paternal line the shrewd realism of Champagne, so de Maupassant appears to have inherited from his Lorraine ancestors their indestructible discipline and cold lucidity. His childhood was passed at Etretat, his beautiful childhood. It was there that his instincts were awakened in the unfoldment of his prehistoric soul. Years went by in an ecstasy of physical happiness, the delight of running at full speed through fields of gorse, the charm of voyages of discovery in hollows and ravines, games beneath the dark hedges, a passion for going to sea with the fishermen, and, on nights when there was no moon, for dreaming on their boats of an imaginary voyage. Madame de Maupassant, who had guided her son's early reading and had gazed with him at the sublime spectacle of nature, put off as long as possible the hour of separation. One day, however, she had to take the child to the little seminary at Yvetot. Later, he became a student at the college at Rouen, and became a literary correspondent of Louis Bouillet. It was at the latter's house on those Sundays in winter when the Norman rain drowned the sound of the bells and dashed against the window panes that the schoolboy learned to write poetry. Vacation took the rhetorician back to the north of Normandy. Now it was shooting at Saint-Julien L'Hapitalier, across fields, bogs, and through the woods. From that time on, he sealed his pact with the earth, and those deep and delicate roots which attached him to his native soil began to grow. It was of Normandy, broad, fresh, and virile, that he would presently demand his inspiration, fervent and eager as a boy's love. It was in her that he would take refuge when, weary of life, he would implore a truce, or when he simply wished to work and revive his energies in old-time joys. It was at this time that was born in him that voluptuous love of the sea, which in later days could alone withdraw him from the world, calm him, console him. In 1870 he lived in the country, then he came to Paris to live, for, the family fortunes having dwindled, he had to look for a position. For several years he was a clerk in the Ministry of Marine, where he turned over musty papers in the uninteresting company of the clerks of the Admiralty. Then he went into the Department of Public Instruction, where bureaucratic servility is less intolerable. The daily duties are certainly scarcely more onerous, and he had his chiefs or colleagues, Xavier Charme and Leon Dureux, Henri Rougeon and René Bilhat, but his office looked out on a beautiful melancholy garden with immense plain trees, around which black circles of crows gathered in winter. Maupassant has made two divisions of his spare hours, one for boating and the other for literature. Every evening in spring, every free day, he ran down to the river whose mysterious current, veiled in fog or sparkling in the sun, called to him and bewitched him. In the islands in the Seine, between Chateau and Port Marley, on the banks of Sartreville and Triel, he was long noted among the population of boatmen, who have now vanished, for his unwearying biceps, his cynical gaiety of good fellowship, his unfailing practical jokes, his broad witticisms. Sometimes he would row with frantic speed, free and joyous, through the glowing sunlight on the stream. Sometimes he would wander along the coast, questioning the sailors, chatting with the ravagers or junk-gatherers, or stretched at full length amid the irises and tansy, he would lie for hours watching the frail insects that play on the surface of the stream, water spiders or white butterflies, dragonflies chasing each other amid the willow leaves, or frogs asleep on the lily pads. The rest of his life was taken up by his work. Without ever becoming despondent, silent, and persistent, he accumulated manuscripts, poetry, criticisms, plays, romances, and novels. Every week he docilely submitted his work to the great Flaubert, the childhood friend of his mother and his uncle, Alfred Le Poitvin. 
The master had consented to assist the young man to reveal to him the secrets that make Chef de Gouf immortal. It was he who compelled him to make copious research and to use direct observation, and who inculcated in him a horror of vulgarity and a contempt for facility. Maupassant tells us himself of these severe initiations in the Rue Murillo, or in the Tenant Croisette. He has recalled the implacable didactics of his old master, his tender brutality, the paternal advice of his generous and candid heart. For seven years, Flaubert slashed, pulverized the awkward attempts of his pupil, whose success remained uncertain. Suddenly, in a flight of spontaneous perfection, he wrote Boule de Suif. His master's joy was great and overwhelming. He died two months later. Until the end, Maupassant remained illuminated by the reflection of the good vanished giant, by that touching reflection that comes from the dead to those souls they have so profoundly stirred. The worship of Flaubert was a religion from which nothing could distract him, neither work, nor glory, nor slow-moving waves, nor balmy nights. At the end of his short life, while his mind was still clear, he wrote to a friend, I am always thinking of my poor Flaubert, and I say to myself that I should like to die if I were sure that anyone should think of me in the same manner. During these long years of his novitiate, Maupassant had entered the social literary circles. He would remain silent, preoccupied, and if anyone, astonished at his silence, asked him about his plans, he answered simply, I am learning my trade. However, under the pseudonym of Guy de Valmont, he had sent some articles to newspapers, and later, with the approval and by the advice of Flaubert, he published, in the République des Lettres, poems signed by his name. These poems, overflowing with sensuality, where the hymn to the earth describes the transports of physical possession, where the impatience of love expresses itself in loud melancholy appeals like the calls of animals in the spring nights, are valuable chiefly inasmuch as they reveal the creature of instinct, the fawn escaped from his native forests, that Maupassant was in his early youth. But they add nothing to his glory. They are the rhymes of a prose writer, as Jules Lemaitre said. To mold the expression of his thought according to the strictest laws, and to narrow it down to some extent, such was his aim. Following the example of one of his comrades of Madame, being readily carried away by precision of style and the rhythm of sentences, by the imperious rule of the ballad, of the pantoum or the chant royal, Maupassant also desired to write in metrical lines. However, he never liked this collection that he often regretted having published. His encounters with prosody had left him with that monotonous weariness that the horseman and the fencer feel after a period in the riding school or about with the foils. Such, in very broad lines, is the story of Maupassant's literary apprenticeship. The day following the publication of Boule de Suif, his reputation began to grow rapidly. The quality of his story was unrivaled, but at the same time it must be acknowledged that there were some who, for the sake of discussion, desired to place a young reputation in opposition to the triumphant brutality of Zola. From this time on, Maupassant, at the solicitation of the entire press, set to work and wrote story after story. His talent, free from all influences, his individuality, are not disputed for a moment. With a quick step, steady and alert, he advanced to fame, a fame of which he himself was not aware, but which was so universal that no contemporary author during his life ever experienced the same. The meteor sent out its light and its rays were prolonged without limit, an article after article, volume on volume. He was now rich and famous. He is esteemed all the more as they believe him to be rich and happy, but they do not know that this young fellow with the sunburnt face, thick neck, and salient muscles, whom they invariably compare to a young bull at liberty, and whose love affairs they whisper, is ill, very ill. At the very moment that success came to him, the malady that never afterwards left him came also, and, seated motionless at his side, gazed at him with its threatening countenance. He suffered from terrible headaches, followed by nights of insomnia. He had nervous attacks, which he soothed with narcotics and anesthetics, which he used freely. His sight, which had troubled him at intervals, became affected, and a celebrated oculist spoke of abnormality, asymmetry of the pupils. The famous young man trembled in secret and was haunted by all kinds of terrors. 
The reader is charmed at the saneness of this revived art, and yet, here and there, he is surprised to discover, amid descriptions of nature that are full of humanity, disquieting flights toward the supernatural, distressing conjurations, veiled at first, of the most commonplace, the most vertiginous shuddering fits of fear, as old as the world and as eternal as the unknown. But, instead of being alarmed, he thinks that the author must be gifted with infallible intuition to follow out thus the taints in his characters, even through their most dangerous mazes. The reader does not know that these hallucinations, which he describes so minutely, were experienced by Maupassant himself. He does not know that the fear is in himself, the anguish of fear, which is not caused by the presence of danger or of inevitable death, but by certain abnormal conditions, by certain mysterious influences in presence of vague dangers. The fear of fear, the dread of that horrible sensation of incomprehensible terror. How can one explain these physical sufferings and this morbid distress that were known for some time to his intimates alone? Alas, the explanation is only too simple. All his life, consciously or unconsciously, Maupassant fought this malady, hidden as yet, which was latent in him. As his malady began to take a more definite form, he turned his steps towards the south, only visiting Paris to see his physicians and publishers. In the old port of Antibes, beyond the causeway of Cannes, his yacht, Bellamy, which he cherished as a brother, lay at anchor and awaited him. He took it to the white cities of the Genoese Gulf, towards the palm trees of Jerez, or the bared bay trees of Antheorg. After several tragic weeks in which, from instinct, he made a desperate fight, on the 1st of January, 1892, he felt he was hopelessly vanquished, and in a moment of supreme clearness of intellect, like Gérard de Nerval, he attempted suicide. Less fortunate than the author of Sylvia, he was unsuccessful. But his mind, henceforth, indifferent to all unhappiness, had entered into eternal darkness. He was taken back to Paris and placed in Dr. Muriot's sanatorium, where, after 18 months of mechanical existence, the meteor quietly passed away. End of section zero. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.